Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's podcast is about an emerging threat, or possibly an emerging opportunity. I'm talking about artificial intelligence. Rapid advances in AI this year have led to a surge in demand for regulation, as politicians worry about everything from mass unemployment to the extinction of mankind. My guest this week is Annie Bradford, a professor at Columbia University in New York, and author of a forthcoming book, Digital Empires, The Global Battle to Regulate Technology. So, can politicians really get to grips with artificial intelligence? When a new technology emerges, there are often Cassandras, warning about its potential dangers. The difference with the AI is that this time, some of the loudest warnings are coming from people inside the community of AI scientists. In May, Jeffrey Hinton, the scientist sometimes described as the godfather of AI, resigned from Google, saying that he wanted to speak freely about artificial intelligence. He explained some of his misgivings in a television interview. Very suddenly, I realized recently that maybe the digital intelligences we were building on computers were actually learning better than the brain. And that sort of changed my mind after about 50 years. The most high-profile advance in AI has been ChatGPT, which I'm sure many listeners will have used for anything and everything, from summarising debates to writing computer code. ChatGPT is the creation of a company called OpenAI, whose CEO, Sam Altman, is suddenly very much in demand. Altman testified recently before Congress in Washington and presented a generally optimistic take about the potential of artificial intelligence. But he was also frank about the possible risks. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. Uh, and we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. But we, we try to be very clear-eyed about what the downside case is and the work that we have to do to mitigate that. My guest this week, Anu Bradford, is a leading expert on tech regulation. She's famous for coining the phrase, the Brussels effect a term that describes how regulation originally designed for the EU has a way of going global. As you'll hear, she thinks something similar could happen with AI. Anu's now a professor in the US, and she's originally from Finland. That's where we met last weekend, at the European Business Leaders Conference in Helsinki. During a gap in the sessions, we sat down to discuss AI. I began our conversation by asking Anu to describe the kind of risks that she thinks politicians and regulators need to think about. There has been tremendous excitement about this technology that offers just incredible potential and many benefits. But alongside those benefits, even the developers of those technologies have now highlighted that there are serious risks. So they talk about how these technologies most likely remake labor markets so they can make humans redundant. And that is obviously unsettling many. 
there are concerns about fraud. So the deployment of AI in the hands of criminals and how those risks can be amplified. And then I think there are genuine concerns about the lack of privacy, the loss of privacy because these tools can become very effective for conducting surveillance. And I would also say we worry about discrimination at large scale when AI is used as a tool to allocate credit or decide who is employed, who gets access to education or public benefits. So discrimination is a concern. And something that worries me a great deal is that the AI can be a tool to spread misinformation and disinformation at large scale. And if you think about settings like elections, when that would happen, that can really unsettle and undermine democracies. So those are some concerns that are now driving this call for the regulators to step in. Are you confident, are the regulators confident that this is a technology that can be effectively regulated? I think that is the biggest challenge. So even if there is now an agreement that regulation is necessary, there's less of an agreement that that regulation can be effective. So the task ahead of the regulators is enormous and it has some challenges, not least because this technology is moving so fast. And the question is that whether any regulation that would be put in place would already be outdated by the time that that regulation is being enforced. And the Europeans have already had a mild experience with that. They were regulating about AI and then ChatGPT comes up. Absolutely. So the Europeans were at the final stages. They had been working on this regulation for two years. And there's a fundamental philosophy of thinking about the risk-based approach to regulation, whereby we adjust the regulatory obligations according to the level of risk any specific AI system would pose. And then the ChatGPT comes out and it's no longer clear it can be used for risky purposes or safe purposes. So this regulatory framework already seemed ill-suited to incorporate ChatGPT. So that, I think, just shows the difficulty of regulating. So what have they done? Have they put the regulation in the bin or are they just adapting it? No, they are adapting the regulation. So at the final stages in the parliament, the parliament decided that ChatGPT and generative AI more broadly will be a part of the AI Act and will be subject to a set of obligations around transparency, so disclosure obligations, accountability, and so forth. But my prediction is that this will be one of the hardest questions that will now dominate this last step of the legislation when the Commission and the Council and the Parliament are trying to align their positions. So Europe is ahead of the game on this. And you've laid out in an article, and I think soon in a book, the idea that there are three different approaches to regulation represented respectively by the EU, by China and the US. Can you just briefly lay out what those three different approaches are? Yeah, so I call the American model a market-driven model, the Chinese model a state-driven and the European a rights-driven model. So the American market development model really rests on this American techno-optimist view, how we should maximize innovation, uh, free internet, and generally opportunities for societal and economic progress. The Chinese are very concerned and focused on making China a technological superpower, but they are also very focused in deploying technology as the tool for propaganda, surveillance and control in order to then preserve social stability and the power of the Chinese Communist Party. 
So the Europeans have instead chosen what I would call a third way, a rights-driven model, which really reflects this human-centric vision for digital development, where we think about the fair distribution of the gains of digital transformation. So those values take a centre stage. Yeah. And you've been somebody who's written very influentially about Europe's role in regulating not just AI, but industry generally, and created this term, the Brussels effect. Can you just explain what the Brussels effect is? Yeah, so by Brussels effect, I refer to the European Union's unilateral ability to regulate the global marketplace. So the EU is one of the largest and wealthiest consumer markets in the world. And there are very few global companies that can afford not to trade in the EU. So as the price for accessing the European market, these companies need to obey European regulations. But often it is in their interest to extend those European regulations across their global product because they want to avoid the cost of complying with multiple different regulatory regimes. So all the EU needs to do is to regulate the single market. It's then the business incentives and the market forces that often globalize the European regulations. Yeah, we saw an interesting challenge to the Brussels effect in AI precisely where Sam Altman of ChatGPT said, you know, EU regulation is so onerous, we may just skip the European market, but then pulled back a couple of days later. He did indeed. And this is something that Meta said earlier when the EU made it impossible for it to continue transferring data Mm -hmm. to the United States. And it basically said that, look, we may have no option but to take our services like Facebook and Instagram out of Europe. And very soon after that, they clarify we have no intention of leaving Europe. And this is exactly what happened now with OpenAI, that Europe still remains There's big enough purchasing power. It is still an important market for these companies. And if you think about also that many of these tech companies, their alternative is not, for instance, to go to China. They cannot operate in China. So it's still very costly for these companies to leave Europe. Yeah. So you're convinced it's an empty threat because, I mean, I've seen Altman say that in private. Mm -hmm. And then he said it in public a couple of days. And then, as you say, he backed off. But I wondered whether it was somebody who just had a word in his ear and said, look, there's no point antagonizing the Europeans right now, work with them, etc. But that at the back of his mind, he might be thinking they'll just be left behind. The future will be made in America and where he is, in his view, and it's their loss. Yeah, so I think it is possible to think that over time, Europe is less and less relevant and these companies might think that they have opportunities elsewhere. But I believe that the conversation on regulation has shifted globally. So open AI cannot count on having a free pass in other markets. There is a serious conversation about regulating AI also in the United States. There are many other markets in the world that are paying very close attention to what the Europeans are doing with the view of potentially replicating and enacting an AI act of their own. So I think that to some extent limits the ability of these companies to single out Europe as the only potential regulator. And I think people around the world are now coalescing around the idea that, look, we need some guardrails and we need to be able to trust these technologies. Another thing that Altman and others technologists have said, they try, in my view, to have it both ways. They say, yeah, we need to be regulated, of course. But then they say, you don't understand this technology and bad regulation is worse than no regulation. Politicians are stupid. But I suppose there is kind of point there in the sense that we don't understand this technology. It's emerging so far. So 
Yes, the Europeans are going to regulate, but do you think they'll regulate well? So I think it is a very valid question, and I don't want to underestimate the challenge of regulating a fast-moving, complex technology that is very multifaceted. And I think the Europeans are conscious that it is hard to get it right. But at the same time, I am not too sympathetic to this idea that the regulators don't know enough to regulate, because ultimately, this is not just about technology. This technology implicates fundamental rights, it implicates democracy, and that is something that the tech companies developing AI are not experts on. So I do not think we can delegate to tech companies the fundamental questions about how democratic societies are being run. And that alone suggests that the democratic lawmakers need to have a seat at the table on how the technology is going to be deployed. So if the EU, as you said, are nearing producing some legislation, they're adapting it to ChatGPT, what effect are they trying to achieve? Yeah, so they are trying to achieve, I would say, transparency and accountability. So the idea that we do not just believe that there's this black box, we have no idea how AI is being developed, how it's being deployed, but rather we, for instance, have disclosure obligations that individuals need to know that some content is generated by AI. So that would be the first thing. And then there are serious penalties if these companies will not design the AI system in a way that guarantee the protection of fundamental rights, democracy, rule of law, safety and health of individuals. And then there are more, I would say, generic obligations that these companies need to be able to assess and mitigate risks. So they're not always as specific obligations, but they are binding obligations and I think that's probably the best that the lawmakers think that they can do at this very moment. And do you think that the massive capabilities of AI can be controlled by regulators because some of the nightmare scenarios that I've heard even some of the technologists sketch out is that you know an example you receive a phone call you think it's your wife but actually it's an AI generated sort of facsimile of your wife. How would a regulator stop that? I think it is a very big challenge for the regulators and ultimately the AI needs to be deployed also to fight the misuse of AI. So we also need to make sure that we develop AI to detect fraud and to be able to mitigate some of the downsides. But I would also say, Gideon, that exactly for the reasons that you mentioned how difficult it is, that we need to have a full buy-in from the companies themselves. It is not in the interest of these companies that societies and individuals are unsettled by these risks and that their tools become basically tools for criminal activity, for massive misinformation, for discrimination. So ultimately, I would like to see that the companies work alongside with regulators to help us achieve some of the goals that we all ought to be sharing. Yeah. And have you had an opportunity to discuss that with the Sam Altmans of this world, perhaps not him personally, but when you make that argument to the technologists, do they buy into it or do they have that kind of libertarian Silicon Valley thing saying, nah? So I would say that today there is a increasing consensus even among the more kind of techno-libertarian developers of these technologies that the moment has passed when the public would just blindly trust self-regulation by these tech companies. But instead, they do concede now that regulation is inevitable. And I think some outmans of the world know when they go to Brussels that the regulation is coming. And the option is really to either fight a losing battle 
and trying to resist regulation or try to work with the regulators so that the regulation is not too constraining, but ultimately also effective. So I think that there's a question that we hear, for instance, that lobbying continues. They want to make sure that the regulatory obligations are not too onerous, and that is probably to be expected. But I think it's less of a chance that they can any more advance more sort of extreme techno-libertarian arguments to say that, look, we've got this and you need to just stay out of the way. Why has the US been behind on regulating this? Is it simply a matter of philosophy that they don't believe in doing it? Or is it that the US system is kind of dysfunctional or both? I think it's both. So first of all, there is this fundamental philosophical sort of faith in markets, much more so than in Europe, and distrust of government. There's still the feeling that the government can make things worse by interfering. That's not necessarily wrong, is it? Well, I think there are many examples where regulation governments don't get it right. And in many ways, this techno-libertarian model has served America well. It's a tremendous source of innovation as a country, and I think there's a legitimate fear that if we regulate, inevitably there would be a cost on innovation. And the U.S. cannot afford it, especially today, if you think about them regulating in the shadow of the U.S.-China tech war. So the technological supremacy remains a primary consideration for the U.S. But I would also say that there is massive lobbying by tech companies, and that does influence Congress, but also just the overall political dysfunction. We have very little legislation that the Congress is able to enact at this time. Yeah, and the Chinese, in the past, I've remembered people say, well, China's bound to fall behind technologically because it's too controlling a society, it doesn't allow freedom of thought. And actually, they've kind of proved us wrong. You know, they've been very, very, ahead in certain forms of technology, mobile payments, and people say they're going to do very well in AI as well. But I think you're more skeptical. Yes, I I think that's right, that it has been quite unsettling for us in the democratic liberal West to witness how China has been able to successfully combine the digital authoritarian model and a thriving technological innovation. So China has produced many leading tech companies despite having the state control model. And that has made it very difficult also for the United States to argue around the world that you should not be following the Chinese model because you need to choose between innovation and political control. No, China has shown that you can have both. And China is doing very well when it comes to AI surveillance technologies. China is a leading not only consumer, but producer of those technologies. But I think it's interesting now to watch what happens with generative AI, because thus far, China has not been able to produce leading generative AI chat GPT type of technologies. And in part, I would attribute that to the censorship, because even though AI can serve the goals of the Communist Party by facilitating surveillance, it can undermine censorship. Because the way you build these large language models, there's a lot of data, a lot of content that goes into building them. And in China, that content needs to be filtered so that it conforms to the censorship rules. And that limits the amount of data that you can use. So that is an opportunity potentially for this American and European view to be vindicated that freedom ultimately does serve innovation. Coming back to Europe then, you're sceptical that the companies will walk away as they've threatened. 
But another concern is around innovation. And, you know, I wrote an article recently, which is probably the best read thing I've written all year, but said obviously hit a nerve, but which was just feeding off what European industrialists had said to me, that, you know, in area after area, we're falling behind. America in particular. Some of it you can't really help. Maybe energy. America has its own source of energy. But they also pointed at capital markets and at technology. And that only two of the 20 biggest tech firms in the world are now based in Europe, SAP and ASML, and they're not even in the top 10. Do you think that is the downside of Europe's willingness, eagerness to regulate? I absolutely share your concern that Europe should not be just thriving as a regulator. It shouldn't just be content being a referee. It needs to get on the field and play offense and defense, and thus far it has not been doing it well. But I am less convinced that I would lay the blame on regulation. So, of course, it's one thing to say that all regulation is beneficial. I think that is wrong. But regulation is not the primary culprit. I would rather say that we have other problems. And one thing is that the Europeans may be so focused on regulation that that takes the energy and they don't pay enough attention to fixing these other genuine problems. And I would single out, we need a digital single market to be completed. It's very hard for European tech companies to scale in the fragmented market. That alone puts them behind their American and Chinese counterparts. Second is the capital markets union. We need much more capital. We don't have the depth and the integration that the US has. A third thing, I would say bankruptcy laws. There are very restrictive bankruptcy laws that makes failure often fatal in Europe. Whereas in Silicon Valley, it's just a rite of passage. Then you go on and raise more funds for your next venture. And the final thing, and this to me, Gideon, is really important. No technology emerges unless you have the top talent. And the Europeans haven't been able to match the Americans in harnessing the global talent. So the US, if you think about, for instance, over $1 billion startups, over half of them have an immigrant founder in the United States. If we think about even just the leading big tech companies, the founders of them. So uh, Steve Jobs of Apple is a son of a Syrian immigrant. Jeff Bezos is a second generation Cuban immigrant. Sergey Brin is Russian. Elon Musk is South African. Eduardo Saverin is Brazilian. So the Americans have been very skillful in making sure that global innovative talent finds the United States as the most promising place to then generate these thriving innovations. And so the EU should be focusing on all those other aspects as well. Yeah, I can see that. Can I ask also about Britain's role? Because the British, as you know, have been searching desperately for possible benefits from Brexit. And they've constantly thought, well, maybe we can play this regulation game, offer a different environment that will draw people in. And I can see them trying to do that with AI unlike the slightly tetchy relationship with Altman that the EU has, the British ushered him into Downing Street. He's now said OpenAI are going to open an office in London. And actually, Britain has some of that immigrant energy that you talked about. I mean, DeepMind is founded by the children of immigrants and it's based in London. Uh, do you think that there is a niche the British can find or do you think actually the Brussels effect will overwhelm them? 
So I think a little bit of both. So I've never argued that the Brussels effect is complete, yet it continues to shape the digital development in the UK as well. And ultimately, if you look at the efforts now in the Trade and Technology Council, for instance, between the US and the EU to shape some common approaches towards technology, the UK is outside of those conversations and we need the voice of the UK for this. But ultimately, if I can go back to the sort of the big three models that I identify as leading ways to regulate. I think the main takeaway is that the UK is actually very much aligned with the Europeans. The UK has not used its regulatory sovereignty that it was trying to seek with Brexit to carve a very different path. It seems to be quite committed to regulating, whether it's AI, content moderation, privacy, antitrust. And I wouldn't say that it is techno-libertarian in the US way. And it certainly is not regulating the way China is. So that just speaks That's to me. because they're culturally like the Europeans or because they're just so close to the European market they have to follow it all? I, I think it's both. So there is a certain economic logic that there's still the kind of gravity of trade that you need the market that is so big and that is closest to you. You cannot really declare your sovereignty from European regulations. And what I've often said is that it's not that the Brexit undermine the Brussels effect. It's really that the Brussels effect does undermine Brexit. And also then the UK has become more of a rule taker as opposed to rule maker. And I would often just think how important it would be to have the UK's voice inside the European Union to shape the conversation about technology. So to some extent, the UK will be influenced by what the Europeans do, whether they like it or not. But there are some domains where they can say that, okay, this is something that we try to do to have an independent role. They went ahead and say, we prohibit Microsoft's acquisition of Activision, where they seem to be even more stringent than the Europeans. The EU was willing to clear that merger. So yes, we may see some discrepancies, but thinking about the big picture, the interest and sort of the values, the vision of the digital society, it is very much aligned with the European Union. And do you think in the long run, the US and the EU will actually come to a deal on this? There are certain differences. So we've seen many battles, whether it's over digital taxation or the EU, according to Americans, being too aggressive in pursuing American companies with antitrust actions. We still don't have a full solution to data transfers. So there are discrepancies how we balance privacy and surveillance. But at the same time, I see a shift. And there are a couple of reasons where I would say that the US is moving closer to the EU. So first of all, I think the American model is failing. Even the Americans no longer trust tech company self-regulation. So the U.S. is at least in terms of its values and public opinion moving closer to the European stand. But then we have the dysfunction of the Congress that may delay translating that into legislation. But the second, there is a genuine and deep and shared concern about China's role in shaping the digital world. And that is something where the U.S. and the EU are very much aligned. So we think about the techno-democracies on one side and then techno-autocracies on the other. And here, I think the case for closer transatlantic cooperation is overwhelming. And last question, how alarmed are you by all this? I know it's not your main field, but obviously anybody who's thinking about AI has heard these warnings, including by the creators of AI, that it could destroy jobs or in fact it could destroy humanity. Are you among the alarmists? Are you in the middle? What do you think? 
I'm probably in the middle just because it is too hard for me to attribute any probabilities to the scariest scenarios. But just the fact that those are even highlighted by people who know what these technologies can do should give us some pause. But even if we don't talk about destroying humanity, I still think that there's a set of harms that are very likely. So if we think about the large scale fraud and just criminal activity that can be amplified with the AI, if we think about disinformation in political elections and what that does to democracy, if we think about the AI facilitating discrimination, undermining privacy, enabling large scale surveillance, I think there are very real risks that are certain to happen and that really call for a regulatory action. So I'm not alarmist. I'm at the same time, I think there's tremendous excitement. And the idea that we can generate positive societal change, enhance productivity, and bring a lot of economic growth at the time we need it. We certainly shouldn't be ignoring the potential. But at the same time, I think we need to be conscious that there are costs alongside those benefits. Yeah. So it's interesting talking to some of the Democrats, and they have an eye on Elon Musk. I mean, they're worried about him because he started saying that he's going to set up an alternative to what he calls woke AI, you know, because even the outmans of this world are trying to sort of screen out hate speech and training the AI to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Is there a sort of libertarian or even far right version of AI yeah. that might grow up alongside? This is not something that I have thought about very deeply, but I think there is a risk. People like Elon Musk have just tremendous faith in their capabilities and they want to be very actively shaping the direction of the development of technologies. And they have certain societal views, including very libertarian views. And the Europeans also are quite unsettled by him when you look at how Twitter has been sort of reneging on its commitment to content moderation and and has indicated that it may no longer abide by the disinformation code that it signed. And it was really telling that the day that Elon Musk finally completed his purchase of Twitter, he basically tweeted that now the bird is freed. And Thierry Breton responded within hours, well, in Europe, the bird will fly by our rules. So I think the Europeans are not going to have sort of any different rules for people like Elon Musk. And I think he just needs to learn that the hard way. That was Professor Anu Bradford of Columbia University, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. You can find FT articles relating to today's podcast in our show notes. And for a limited time this summer, we're making those articles free to read for all Rachman Review listeners. Click the links in our show notes to make the most of this summer offer and enjoy more of the FT's international journalism with no paywall. Thanks for listening, and please join me again next week. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.